Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. How are you? If you're a first-time listener, thank you very much. That it means a lot to me. And uh, you can go to my website, thematdwyer.com, and you could email me and tell me what you think of the show, and I'd be really thrilled. Um, or if you're a regular listener and you want to say, "Hey, Matt Dwyer, keep up the good work," or "Hey, Matt Dwyer, uh, maybe you should shower more," uh, feel free to do so. Um, if you haven't listened to the show before, it is just what the title implies. It is a conversation with me uh, and uh, a unique individual. Uh, I've, st- I've talked to a lot of artists and musicians, and uh, I'm pretty proud of the 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 variety and incredible people I had. And today is no exception. I speak with jazz musician Phil Ranlin, who uh, also was a session player in Motown. And uh, man, just... This is like it's a very unique and different episode, and I'm very proud of it. It's has a lot of levels to it, and I think you'll really, really dig it. And uh, if you like uh, musicians and stuff, I've talked to a slew of them, so you can just go through my archives there and uh, check out. Uh, I've talked to Ken Vandermark, Dave Bazan, Wayne Kramer. There's just a bunch of them, and it's really great. So uh, do that. Uh, I. Uh, Currently, I'm sitting in a hot kitchen, and I just made my coffee way too strong, so I kind of feel like like Burroughs or Kerouac, like in Mexico, just uh, riddled on speed, hot and uncomfortable and uh, shaking. <laughs> That's how I feel right now. Uh, we, my, I broke my coffee maker. Uh, I've been using an AeroPress, and I can't figure it out quite right, so it's like set at uh, super-duper trucker speed coffee levels. So I got that going for me. Uh, and uh, I have rosacea or something on my face, so it looks uh, I look like a Dalmatian if their spots were red. So I just want to give you an image, because people, I'm sure when they listen to my podcast, they're like, uh, they're like, wow, does Dwyer wear like $2,000 suits and Italian leather shoes and drive a Ferrari? I mean, podcasts are big money. He must be really, and he talks to all these fabulous people, so he too must be fabulous. Uh, no. Plaid shorts. Uh, cup shirts, that's too big for me. Blotchy face. Shaky coffee. Hot. And, uh, I don't have deodorant on, so uh, there's, uh, like, sticky armpits. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you about this. I keep struggling whether I want to tell you about this incident I had at the dog park. I, we got, my girlfriend and I got, like, a second dog, so it's like, uh, we have to take this guy to the dog park or our lives are, are living hell. Living hell. Uh, 
And so, but there's this lady, I'd ladies is not the right word, but she's, there's this woman who, you ever know these people who aren't that fancy in the world, but they think they're really fancy, and all this woman ever does is talk about how great she is, or how every, how awful everything else is in the world, and she, and she was talking about, you know, like, I don't know why people who work in fast food restaurants should make more than minimum wage. Why should they make $15 an hour? I mean, maybe you did something wrong with your life at that point that you ended up working in fast. So why should I have to pay? You know, And, you know, not like why do the executives make $8 billion <laughs> and the rest of the people that work for the company can barely make a living wage. But it, it to me, it's just like this, this people, like... In the world where we're becoming more tolerant, but we always have to have a group to pick on, it's becoming the poor. Like, let's pick on, oh, you know, so, you know, maybe the guy who's working at the uh, fast food restaurant was a factory worker, and then they shipped the factory off to, I don't know, some third world country, so now the only job he could get to sustain himself, barely, is uh, working at a McDonald's. But no, let's pick on the guy, because his life didn't go well, and now he's not making a lot of money, so he's not as good as you, uh, woman. Who is uh, we? We have a really crude name for, her and I f I don't want to say it because <laughs> it's really awful, but it has something to do with her size. But uh, she's just always like, and she hangs out with the old people, like the old and like like because they can't get away from her. I don't know. I but what is really re what really just upsets me is the uh, picking on the poor. Like, you know, like anybody who's uh, making a lousy income is like, well, you know, like they're pleased with it. Like they're like, yeah, I'm lazy. I'm working at this McDonald's, but, you know, I'm really, I'm technically I'm lazy that I work these long hours in this really hot kitchen sweating for no money and health insurance, which I don't have. And as you know, I'm a very rich, uh, sweaty podcast guy. I don't know. I just wish people would like, I don't know where this, where this picking on the poor became became acceptable you know it's it's bigotry uh, you know like when we make trailer park jokes like oh, but you live in a trailer park it's like um oh i'm sorry they live in a economically depressed uh low you know portion of the uh, united states where the education isn't uh you know very accessible <laughs> so they had to uh get crappy jobs and live in a trailer and by the way, I have a friend who lives in an Airstream trailer, and I I wish I did. I envy. I envy. It's uh, that's pretty swank in my. You know, I see those guys in those little uh, like I don't know if they have them in the other parts of the world, but in L.A. There's like all over the place. There's guys with like you know they have like a camper thing on the back of a pickup or a you know a small RV, and they live in those. That to me seems awesome. Like I literally last night I walked by a parking lot, and there was a guy. You know, there was one of those things. And it clearly, the guy, you can't call him homeless because he's, it's just a very mobile uh, home that he could take everywhere. But I was like, I was greatly admiring that. I was like, man, you could just go and park in any neighborhood and go out and get loaded and walk home. Like you in LA, that's that's a quite a bunch. You could walk home. <laughs> Every neighborhood is your neighborhood as long as, you know, somebody doesn't come and smack it with a hammer at five in the morning when you're trying to sleep. But still... It's pretty awesome. That's my goal, I think, in life. I think I'd be okay with just health insurance and an RV, and that'd be okay. Uh, all right, we're going to get on with the conversation with uh, Phil Ranelin. Uh Thank you very much for listening. Go to themattdwyer.com, email me. Phil Ranelin, everybody. time considerably younger than me not as quite as younger than me now but you know like uh, we both had bands you know separate bands and his band was being promoted by John Sinclair you know so I knew John very well and, and knew of uh, the MC5 you know uh, I don't remember ever meeting Wayne back then but we hooked up out here in, in oh, California really? I would guess as Wayne, as a as a young man, probably looked up to you a great deal. I mean, because he, he was such a jazz nut. Yeah, he you know he he did, and and uh, 
Wayne is so talented, man. I'm telling you the truth. Uh, I don't I don't know if you've ever had <coughs> had the pleasure of reading any of his writings. I mean, you know, like he's a great writer. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, and he uh, happened to have reviewed a performance I did at Barnstall, a tribute to Melba Liston, the great female trombone player. And it was like uh, Leonard Feather or any of those guys couldn't have done a better job. I mean, you know, he's a great writer, you know, he expresses. Brought tears to my eyes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, and he's sincere, so, you know, you have to uh, really appreciate him. He's, uh, he's a hell of a guy, really. Do you think people have uh, forgotten, with the state that Detroit is in these days, that people forgot a bit of how much magic was going on there musically? Not the people that were there during that time, especially, and, and people, you know, in your age generation even. I mean, you know, because the music and the art was so powerful that people talked about it, you know, after it was over. You know, like, they're still talking about a... Uh, I don't want to sound like it's me, 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 but I happened to have presented a, uh, a tribute to um, um, 400 years of, of black music. <laughs> and... and uh, I went all the way back, but but the primary focuses was people like Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, and Duke uh, um, Charlie Mingus and Miles Davis and people like that. And so that particular concert, people still remember that, and that was like '76, you know, in '76. So yeah, to your answer to your question is Detroit uh, is very culturally rich and I coming from Indianapolis Indiana it was like oh man this is really great you know when I first got there I really uh, still have a, a great respect and love for Detroit you know I'm hoping that it will rebound too you know I kind of think it is I mean there's a lot of artists moving there now I kind of think so too you know because the last time I was there it was such a big improvement over the time before I was there, you know, because the time before I was there, I stayed downtown Detroit. And, you know, I remember Detroit as bustling town, busy in the morning, people, you know, walking around, traffic jams, you know. And I'm, it's 7.30 in the morning, I'm looking at bus go by with two people in it, you know, <laughs> whereas it used to be full, you know, it was almost like a ghost town. But, this last time, I did notice there was a lot more activity, and, you know, it seems like it's on the uprise to me. That'd be great. It's such a... In fact, I'm going back there in September to perform, you know, uh, with a reunion band that I had uh, back in the 70s. Which band is that? Uh, I called it at the time Vibes from the Tribe. Yeah. And the reason being was uh, <coughs> Tribe... The, you know, the, the mother tribe had kind of folded up. We had kind of got sick and tired of each other. <laughs> 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 and we wanted to just kind of part ways for a while. And we since now have came back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, uh, maybe a old girlfriend that you go back. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> tribe you know like had broken up okay so i just had released vibes from the tribe you know in 76 and so we're talking about the fall of 76 i decided that i'm a former band why not call it vibes from the tribe you know i just released this record i gotta figure out a way how to sell it and promote the band <laughs> and everything so i called the band phil randall and vibes from the tribe we only lasted a year you know and but we opened up for McCoy Tyner and uh, Les McCann and played some concerts in uh, Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Anyway, it's a revival of that band, and I have two alumni that will be with me that were you know like the original members, Rod Williams, a piano player, and uh, Jaribu Shahid, a bass player, and. Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. And actually, going back to your hometown. Too. Oh, you're going to Chicago? Are you guys playing in Chicago? Yeah. Well, 
Not everyone, but Rod and myself, and uh, we got two uh, Chicago, great Chicago musicians, you know, super quartet. Um, Harrison Bankhead, great bassist, and Charles Rumback, uh, drummer, uh, young drummer. When are you going to be in Chicago? I'll be there on the 4th of October. Oh, I was going to be there in December. I was like, damn, I want to... <laughs> Maybe we'd make a trip a little earlier. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the... it's a real hip club. I don't know if you're aware of it. When's the last time you've been back there? I was just got back there from a couple weeks ago. Do well, you know Constellation at all? I do, oh, I do. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm working. Yeah, that's a Great really jazz-supportive... Yeah. It's, yeah. it's amazing that Chicago is a very thriving... Uh, jazz city still. I mean, it seems like it's died out in some city. How is the jazz scene currently in Los Angeles? Next question. You know, the jazz. It's uh, it's not. It's, it's great musicians here. It's just not enough venues to accommodate. You know, maybe that's a problem everywhere, but really big time here. You know, uh, not very many venues. And it's hard to get people to come out. Yeah. Uh, you know, live. It's heartbreaking because uh, I saw some jazz night uh, at the Ramada Inn on Vermont that this guy, this is maybe six years ago. I remember when that was going on. This, You know, Gust, who uh, runs that, he was running the bar down there and he, I think he, I don't know if he put it together or, but it was like incredible. Like, I mean, it was, mm -hmm. and I was, it was like maybe five people in the audience. I was like, what is wrong with this town? I mean, it's like, <laughs> it was mind-blowing jazz. And and like you say, he had, at the time, I don't know when you were there, but probably he had been doing it for a while when you were there. And, you know, you would think that, you know, people would come out and support, but it's, it's tough. It's a tough town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Do you feel like the rest of the United States has lost its sort of, uh, kept up with the current state of jazz, or um, I see, I see a uh, kind of in limbo right now. It's, it's uh, it could it could actually go either way. It, it seems like it's right now for me. It's a little less, you know. Uh, but <clears throat> maybe that's because the audience has gone grown quite old. You know, along with some of the musicians, but uh, the whole objective is to try to, you know, like rejuvenate the audience through the youth. You know, like that that kind of was taking place uh, around the turn of the century. It seemed like a lot of young people were really uh, embracing jazz and the art. You know, uh, not so much now, but I think I think it I think it'll be okay. Because you have some incredible young players, too. Yeah. yeah. And I also would hope that maybe there's the renewed interest in the city of New Orleans seems oh, yeah. to be inspiring a lot of young... I mean, definitely young players always come out of New Orleans, but, you know, um, people I know are interested in New Orleans again, and I think that helps. It also brings people back to more, you know, the roots of jazz, which I think a lot of people, yeah. younger people don't... Yeah, this is true. The interesting thing about you, absolutely right. Uh, um, but the in the interesting thing about your last comment is that a lot of people think that New Orleans was the birth of jazz in in this country, whereas it was definitely uh, a major town that you know like that promoted the music and, and where it came from but all over the country it was happening you know in little small places people never heard of you know and uh, you know it came through from the slave you know the, the recently released slave I mean they were making music not only in New Orleans you know everywhere you know so um, and New Orleans has embraced it you know like it's totally theirs and and that's what has been promoted but 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 uh i i've had this discussion with other people and and we uh, really realized that the music actually uh in some backwoods somewhere someone was creating you know uh, 
some music. It just didn't get promoted like New Orleans. And Chicago was actually, you know, well known for that too, in a sense. That's interesting because you don't hear people say that a lot, but it makes sense that, you know, New Orleans just sort of had the bigger voice about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a port too, you know. Uh, and it had the uh, influx of all the different uh, societies, and uh, it had, uh, wow. It had it had what it takes to <laughs> be known <laughs> as a bird yeah. <coughs> and, uh, uh, and when Marcellus certainly makes sure that you remember that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that guy can be asked directions without mentioning that. <laughs> yeah. Um, to go back to the tribe, too, because that was a very political jazz group too weren't you most of your albums were political oriented very much at the time yeah and uh and a lot of it was uh, about black consciousness mm-hmm. which i think can you enlighten people who may not be fully aware of what that means in that from that era well okay um as a black man in america you know like uh, i face uh, that every day, you know, like uh, things, uh, the climate was not very good, especially during that time. Um, we had a lot of secret wars that were going on, you know, uh, and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, injustices that were taking place. So, um, we we wanted to create something that the people could be proud of, you know, in the community. So uh, when we come up with this idea about tribe, of course, we didn't have everything in place as to how to get all these things done. You know, uh, we wanted to form a band. When I say we, I'm actually speaking of myself and Wendell Harrison. Uh, when when we uh, decided to form this band, we were only thinking about getting the music to the people and so and we wanted to uh, record and we wanted to present concerts so we knew that we could get some support from the black community in particular with 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 putting together a program booklet by advertising their businesses we would you know uh, charge a certain amount to to get an ad in our program books for the concerts. So that's the way we kind of started promoting the concerts without any money, you know, which we didn't have. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so we just had this idea about how to put on concerts and how to record the band. And, and actually recording the record aspect of it came later because we had already been doing concerts. And so then we looked at each other and said, I hope I'm coming across here too because I talk real quiet. But but yeah. they they saying, <laughs> can you hear me at all? <laughs> but you know, like we decided, uh, well, we need to record this. Oh, okay, well, so um, we did a couple of live recordings, which never were released. But then we went in the so-called studio. The the guys that were running the the first uh, recording studio that we recorded in didn't know very much about recording at all. You know, they they just had some equipment, and so <laughs> things that we wanted to do later we couldn't do. So <laughs> it is what it is, you know. So um, the other thing, uh, I'm probably not answering your question too good, but we had created this opportunity for people to rekindle their dreams, you know, and, and, you know, people that hadn't played their instruments in years, they, you know, they were inspired to get them out of the closet. And we had people connected to the magazine that were writers, very good writers that, so the, the whole idea, it, it was creating jobs for the people there too, you know, so. Uh, that was important, uh, and 
to bring about some pride in, you know, who you were, you know, because a lot of people had uh, kind of given up, you know. So we feel um, we made some impact on uh, improving some of the conditions and providing some work opportunities and that sort of thing. And uh, the magazine in particular, I can't take a lot of credit for that uh, because Wendell kind of almost stopped playing for a while to concentrate on the magazine. And it ended up being a pretty nice magazine that dealt with uh, all, aspects, all aspects of black life, you know. Um, you know, uh, current events and, you know, uh, features on, on, I can remember one cover, there was a feature on Coleman Young, who was the first black mayor in Detroit. And, um, yeah, it was an interesting period, you know. And you, you know, it, the tribe had a label, a magazine, and... And a band. And a band. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of unheard of in those days to, for a band to be that... I think you're right, you know. There were other organizations that had taken place, you know, all over the country. I can't name all the names, but in, okay, in St. Louis there was a group called BAG. I think that stood for Black Artists Group. And Reggie Workman had a group in New York. I can't remember the initials, but Horace Tapscott had something out here called UGMA. But as... When I think about it, I don't think anyone, any any of those groups were actually uh, recording their own music and having a record label at the same time, you know, just trying to really survive, you know, by by forming these organizations. Um, so I think we were a little kind of unique in a sense. Was was that born out of sort of a necessity? Necessity. Yeah, and yeah, not, absolutely. and you didn't want to deal with maybe major labels or whatever. Exactly, you hit the nail right on the head. <laughs> <laughs> no one was knocking on my door. <laughs> but I mean, hey, we want to record. No, that wasn't happening. So you know, like we're getting in our late twenties now, man. We got to do something, you know. Like so, um, that's why. Yeah, it was born out of necessity. God, I, I wish uh, that would that people would still have that much, uh, you know, motivation. It, it more people need to be organized musically. It seems like stuff with such a big corporate world of music now that a lot of stuff I feel gets lost. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, these rappers, you know, like they took it to another. You know, I'm not necessarily into that music or anything, but as far as promotion and marketing. man i wish i you know i don't have that energy now but i mean back then that i mean they they had the answer they have their own clothing lines and you were doing a lot of session work in detroit at that time too motown right and was that how did that work would it just would was there like a stable of people they used and you just would go in and like yeah it was hard to get in too because uh in all honesty, uh, I had been trying to get in for about a year and a half, you know. Had great recommendations for from guys who were actually already in, right? They, you know, they get the call and they go in. Uh, but I I couldn't get in there, you know, like, and uh, I happened to, I went out on tour with Stevie Wonder. And at the end, towards the end of the tour, I don't know how he knew it was me. He didn't really know my name or anything, but I'm getting on the bus, and I guess he heard me talking probably, and uh, he recognized my voice. That's the only way I can understand why he said, hey, 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 trombone, what's your name? And then you know, I told him my name. And he said, make sure you give uh, your number, your, all your information to my manager uh, when, when you leave. When, you, when we, you know, when tour ends, <laughs> so <clears throat> did I have to ask him why he wanted my number? <laughs> hey, right now, you know. <laughs> so I gave my information to his manager, who was this lady at the time, and um, 
the tour ended the next day, and then about three days after that, I get a call from Motown for my first record sessions, you know. I wonder why. I wonder how come all of a sudden. <laughs> so I, I'm sure he probably doesn't even remember that, but I sure do. How did you get hooked up with Stevie Wonder? Well, I was recommended to Stevie uh, from a, a fellow uh, musician who who was um, making calls for the to put the band together. The contractor for this for this tour, you know, the, he uh, his name was man Tate Houston, great baritone player who's been gone 20 years at least now, but uh, he, uh, yeah, he recommended me. And so uh, um, thank you, Tate, and thank you, Stevie, you know, because uh, I ended up doing a bunch of Motown sessions, but I only get paid residuals on one. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Papa was a Rolling Stone. Oh, really? <laughs> so, but they had a way somehow of, I guess coffee gets spilled on the contract. Ah, well, you know, I don't know, but you know the contracts, mysterious. You know they don't exist. You know a lot of them. You know, so a lot of times, you know, like um, when you see records that come out, you know, you see people's names who were involved, like the musicians. You don't see that. <laughs> you don't see that on Motown records. Maybe one or two you might see. Was Motown notorious for doing stuff like that? I never, I've never heard that. Huh? Was Motown notorious for screwing over musicians? Because uh, you've heard of other people doing it. I never thought Motown would have. Yeah, well, yeah, they did. I mean, you know, like it was. Uh, I'm not the only one, you know, complaining about it. And, uh, all those sessions, even some of the guys that were recording said, "You mean to tell me, you?" You get how much after all them sessions you did, and you, that's the only one you get paid on. Yeah, that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me see then. I can't, you know, like say for sure that it was deliberately done, but you know the contracts were lost. I mean, you know, it's that's what I was told. You know, the contracts were lost. So. I swear it is. That sounds like bullshit Sa to me. Saves, <laughs> <laughs> Sa saves a lot of money, I know that. Yeah, somebody benefited <laughs> from that uh, that accident. Uh, and is, is session work used to be something that like musicians really could su survive on for yeah, decades. Yeah, count on. And, like uh, me, for instance. Okay, in all honesty, <clears throat> when I moved to California in 1977, I... Uh, I was thinking in terms of almost semi-retiring because I was 38 years old and, and getting really old now. And I better be trying to figure out. I know I don't really like, the, I appreciate the cold climate anyway, so why don't I just go to California, play with Freddie Hubbard and some of these people out there, hang out on the beach and and do recording sessions to make my living, you know. I had this all in my mind, like it's a, it's a done deal, right? It's a piece of, piece of cake, you know. I'm just going to go out there and do all this. <laughs> <laughs> so when I get here, all the Freddie Hubbard and all that, all that happened. But Motown was just about at the point of just excluding horns altogether on their sessions out here. You know, the synthesizer was really prominent at that point. And I did maybe two or three sessions when I first got here. You know, when I first got here, it was ironic that it happened when I first got here. And then it didn't happen anymore, you know, as far as, you know, Motown recordings. And so... Uh, yeah, and, and any other recordings, all that whole recording scene was really diminishing during that time, around the late 70s. Yeah. That's, uh, did it ever pick up again, or did it no. just... No, 
No, I didn't. It, it, it uh, okay, where it used to be a nucleus, I'm going to just grab a figure. It won't, be, it won't be accurate at all. But say, from a figure of 200 first call people or call people that you call for, you know, the next 10 sessions coming up, it went down to five people. I mean, you know, it's just few, very few that would get a call. So, being a trombone player, because it seems like there's not a ton of, it seems like you were to be ahead of the pack of the trombone players a bit. Did that help out at all? or? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, it didn't seem to. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem to at all. Um, you know, like the first first few years I was here, I did pretty well. I mean, despite the fact that there wasn't a lot of recordings going on. Uh, but then things dried up even more. And, you know, like, um, uh, that's why I had to. I didn't really ever want to be a band leader again, but <laughs> 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 necessity uh, dicks dictates a lot you know so yeah sometimes uh, you know a couple of friends of mine call me the reluctant band leader <laughs> <laughs> come on Phil you gotta do it man <laughs> but no you know I, I really enjoy that now though that's one thing about it and uh, I uh, I just got back from uh, Northern California was up at uh, Fort Bragg oh we were just in got Fort Bragg <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, I love it up there. God's country. It's beautiful up there. Yeah. So we played at the North Coast uh, Brewing Company. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you were there when we were there, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> so when were you there? Well, when were we there? June, June 22nd is when we got there. Oh, no, I'm sorry. And we stopped on the way back. Later we were there again, yeah. Oh, the reason I perked up at June, you said June, I had a flashback, but it was the wrong one. I <laughs> Because June 23rd, 22nd, I was on my way to Dakar, Senegal. Oh, okay. Yeah. To play uh, the Dakar, the Dakar's uh, Gory Jazz Festival. Oh, wow. And all this is actually a part of growing old. <laughs> <laughs> because when I, uh, you know, uh, uh, May 25th, I turned 75 years old. Wow. So... I decided that I was going to celebrate the whole year and book some gigs. And um, it's been, you know, fairly successful in the sense that I went to Dakar, Senegal. <laughs> 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 and I went to Fort Bragg. And, you know, like, so I have this Midwest tour coming up. And then I'll be going to Panama um, for the Danilo Perez uh, Jazz festival in january next year which i'm still celebrating because in january i'll still be 75 you know so. <laughs> that's that year <laughs> yeah so uh what led you to pick up the trombone like what was the influence on that i have to uh kind of blame my grandmother not for the trombone but she sit me down one day and said I want you to be a musician, you know. And uh, I listened to her, you know. And uh, a couple of years later, uh, I started playing. But I wanted to play saxophone. But everyone else did too, you know. So <laughs> I started since I started in the school system, you know. Uh, the only <laughs> not a real romantic story, you know. But the only thing <laughs> left was the trombone. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and I started really liking it, so that's why I stuck with it. And but Indianapolis had a isn't J.J. Johnson oh, from yeah. yeah? So it has a Indianapolis Hampton, Slide Hampton, David Baker. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that so many legendary trombone players come out of the one city? It's interesting that you bring it up, but yeah, I've, I I totally agree. It is kind of somebody uh, said it must be in the water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> JJ played on a lot of Mingus stuff, didn't he? Or am I nuts? Uh, 
I thought it, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if he played on a lot, but I'm sure he played on some because, man, back then it seemed like he was recording. I I remember looking at the year 1947 or 49 or something. The sessions that he did was almost like almost one every day <laughs> with someone, you know, and, and different artists, you know. So I wouldn't be surprised. He probably did play uh, Mingus's. Yeah, I'm sure. Did you ever work with Mingus or see Mingus? I never did. I never uh, had that opportunity. But his uh, legend sure got to me. He was a piece of work from what I understand. Yeah, I've, I've read a couple Genius, of... Genius, but boy, kind of difficult to get along with. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to get back to the conversation here in one second. I just want to say real quickly, if you could do myself and Feral Audio a favor, if you could go to my page at feralaudio.com, the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, and click on the Amazon link. And if you, I don't know, put that in your toolbar and you use that for when you buy uh, movies or diapers or cleaning stuff, uh, we get a kickback of that money. And that helps us support uh, the shows and uh, and buy equipment. Also, if you can, and I know times are tough, if you could donate a little something, that would help us out a lot. Um, I'm trying to get a new recorder, and it helps us, you know, uh, keep these uh, the websites up and all that, and uh, keep Feral Audio running and conversations with Matt Dwyer running. That's it. Sorry uh, for interrupting. Back to the show. You said something in an interview that you feel that. Uh, I don't know if you still feel this way, but that Eric Dolphy used to communicate to you or was sort of guiding you? Wow, when did I tell you that? I just I heard, read that in an interview. It's true. I mean, it's very true, you know, but I didn't... I didn't, I didn't I, okay, you, I didn't realize I had said that before. <laughs> I guess I have said it many times because it's so true, you know, uh, especially lately, you know. Um, I started through my... Uh, Representative, I started doing things for Eric Dolphy back in in '02, and uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about her. Uh, her name is Dalili Pearson, and she's been representing me for the last 18 years, right? And she's a big Eric Dolphy fan, and so am I. So that wasn't a hard sell or anything, but but she's even more so, right? Because her mom went to school with Eric, and she was she and her husband were living in Paris in 1964. She was 18 or 19 years old, and, and she just got married, and her mom had set it up where Eric was going to meet her at this club because she had never met him before. And she said, you know, my daughter's just crazy about your music and she sure wants to meet you. And so her mom hooked it up where they would, uh, Dalili and her husband would go to this club and meet Eric Dolphy. Two days before that, he died. So she, she didn't know that. We didn't have the internet or anything back then. She, they went to the club in Paris and uh, sit there at the bar and saw a young man uh, walk in. <laughs> I don't know why I'm a cry, but anyway, um, young man walked in and he looked very distraught and he was standing there. And so they went up and said, uh, uh, Hi, it's, you know, we're from Los Angeles, and we're here to hear Eric Dolphy. Are you in the band or anything? He said, yeah, my name is Woody Shaw, and Eric died two days ago. And so, um, in 2002, we got a, a grant from Cultural Affairs to uh, do a presentation uh, on Eric at the uh, William Grant Steele I don't know if you're familiar with William Grant Steele. It's a very small community center over off of Adams. So anyway, um, we got this grant to do uh, a presentation uh, 
um, uh, what do you call it? A tribute to Eric Dolphy. Okay, so I had the band together. Had all the guys that I thought I wanted uh, to present this with. I had a great singer who had written some lyrics on one of Eric's tunes. And I had my flyer out, and I had it in the community. And it's about really about a week to go before the performance. And I come home, and I have a message on my voice um, uh, mail. It says, uh, hey, Phil, uh, give me a call, man. Uh, I, I, I really want to <laughs> I wanna be on this concert. Uh, uh, you don't have to pay me nothing, but... Please give me a call so we can talk about it. And his name was uh, Didisi. Um, Didisi, I can't remember Didisi's last name, but anyway, he's a brilliant flute player. <laughs> and so uh, I, uh, you know, I call him up, and he told me a story that was so incredible um, that when he was nine years old. <clears throat> In 1964, he was nine years old. He and some of his buddies who lived close uh, to the cemetery that Eric is buried in, they made it, uh, you know, like it was a daily thing. They would go, for some reason, they would go in the cemetery and look at all the fresh graves. I don't know why, but that was part of the routine. As young kids, they was going to the cemetery. So they came up on uh, Eric Dolphy's grave, fresh grave, and Didisi said he read the in scripture that said, Eric Dolphy, a man who lived in his music and for some reason that stuck in his head and and he found and he wanted to find out about who this Eric Dolphy was and everything, so he read up on him and found out what instruments he played so he talked his parents into buying him a flute and he would go <laughs> he would go to the grave site every day and play over the grave and he did that for two or three years and I'm thinking maybe Eric channeled through him or something because he he is no joke himself. You know, wow. it's someone you never heard of, but whew, he can play the flute. He has some personal problems, but man, is he talented. So anyway, after hearing that story, <laughs> I said, "Hey, man." There's no way in the world that you can't be on the gig. I mean, you're going to get paid. Don't talk about you don't want no money, you know. So anyway, he was on it, and it turned out beautiful, and that was the first one. But little things happen. Whenever I'm doing something for Eric or a tribute to Eric or something, things may look like they're not going to fall into place, and they always do. You know, I went to Panama. There again, I had a grant, but I didn't have a place to stay. I didn't have a venue. I'm supposed to be doing workshops. Some of these things have been talked about. We're communicating. Dalili's communicating with these people, you know, however many miles away it is, and, and I'm here, and it's time to leave and I'm getting on the airplane I don't have a place to stay but I knew it was going to be alright I didn't have a venue when I get there I had people to pick me up I had these messages you know I'm staying at this hotel so then I had another message I have to contact the Danilo Perez Foundation uh, to uh, I didn't know at the time that I was being interviewed, I, I, I didn't realize that I didn't have the venue. That's what it was. I didn't know that. I thought, you know, but but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I make contact with the Danilo Perez <clears throat> Foundation, and I don't speak, I, I can say uh, 
¿Cómo está? Sí. <laughs> Muy bien. And that's about it, right? So I'm in this uh, in this conference room with about five people, and they all talking and everything. So, um, so anyway, um, the uh, I guess uh, the head person in charge spoke a little English, and she says, uh, "Thank you, uh, Mr. Randall." Uh, we will be in touch with you. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> so, uh, there are two elderly people standing there, so they they look at me, and they spoke a little English too, so they said, we'll take you uh, to your hotel. I said, oh, great, thanks. And so, so anyway, I'm in the car with these two people, and... <clears throat> And they're driving me to the hotel, and, and so I say, I say, by the way, um, how, how how do you know how do you know Janillo? And uh, the guy who was driving, he kind of smiled, and so smiled in the mirror, and he said, "I'm his papa." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Oh." Papa, oh, that's how you met him. Oh, okay, wow, okay. So they ended up, wow, those beautiful people, they really ended up being so special and taking me everywhere when I was in Panama City. But anyway, I didn't realize that, you know, during that meeting, they were interviewing me, you know, so uh, I got the gig. So they said, well, yeah, you can do this uh, amount of uh, uh, presentations, and we have all the facilities, and so everything was great. And, they, and man, they had some great students there. They had something like 12 pianos in different rooms, big, huge place, and uh, they provide instruments for the students. I think it's something like nine to sixteen or seventeen or something. And I met this incredible female flute player who was sixteen years old. All I remember is her name was Angie. And that's three years ago. So she's now nineteen. And I'm telling you the truth. She said she had been playing three years. And she played the flute like she had been playing 50 years at least. I mean, wow. she's in, just incredible, improvising the sound. and Just three years and you've developed this. I mean, incredible. What a talent. But um, um, the last day I was there, I was there for a month, you know. So we had a, not the last day, but two days before I was to leave, we had a big concert. And we played a song that I wrote for Eric Dolphy and, you know, the ensemble there with all the kids, you know. And uh, it, it was really gratifying. And I think Eric had something to do with that, too. Because <laughs> a lot of musicians talk about, especially jazz musicians, about it's sort of a spiritual quest, their Absolutely. music. And you feel like that, in a way, becomes intermingled with, say, like the yeah, spirit of I'm Dolphy. I'm convinced. I'm totally convinced. <laughs> and I'll tell you another story. I'll try not to cry on this one, but um, the, the the male singer that was on that first tribute that we did, his name is Mark Broyard. <laughs> now, Mark met the Dolphys, uh, meaning Eric's parents, right? Um I'm not sure of the year, but uh, Mark, at the time that he met Eric's parents, he was 18 or 19 years old, so um, I still can't figure out the year, but, but he, he was kind of seeing about them, running errands for them, taking them to their doctor's appointments, this, that, and the other. And uh, they, you know, kind of, adopted him like a son or something and you know and he would just go by the house anytime he felt like it so one night um 
Mrs. Dunphy decides she's going to give Mark one of uh, Eric's possessions and one of his prized possessions at that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen many of Dolphy um, um, album covers at all. You have? have you, I'm sure then that since, since you said that, <laughs> oh, since you said that, Matt, <laughs> now you said it, okay. You've seen this pipe occasionally. Have you ever noticed on any of those album covers him with a pipe? I haven't. Yeah. I didn't do okay. well in school, though. All right. But anyway, on several album covers that I've seen, I, I saw a very classic-looking, heavy-looking pipe that Eric was holding, you know. So Mrs. Dolphy gives this particular pipe to uh, Mark Broyard, the singer, right? So now that particular night, now this this is... This story gets a little well. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that, you know, because I kind of have that feeling too. But I'm thinking, you know, if anyone would lie like that, it would be uh, totally. Uh, they'd have to pay for it anyway. Mark says that he goes home and he's about to go to bed, and Eric presence came to him now he's he said he was half sleep or whatever but anyway he says that eric came to him and says i want you to write some lyrics for and he named the song he didn't say one of my songs i believe it's called simone i want you to write some lyrics and i really want to thank you for being so kind to my parents and uh I really appreciate that. And he said, that was it. And he said, and he kind of like, man, what's going on? And this thought's in his head, and he thought he had, had a vision of Eric. And he's, he said he threw the back of uh, the back curtain open where a big tree was that was full of birds just fluttering in the, in the tree like, you know, and it's one or two o'clock in the morning and Eric Dolphy was known to have communicated with birds and that was his whole thing was he was you know he made bird calls on the flute and he practiced with the birds <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that was uh, you know that's what uh, Mark said happened to him evolving around the pipe I don't know but that particular night and I don't think he was lying, you know, but, it, you know, it's it's, 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 it's it's a story that you have to really wonder about. But, um, man, um, <laughs> some, of the, some of the things that happened along the way that are incredible. I will say this, and this is totally, totally true. <laughs> I was doing... You brought up the name Charlie Mingus. I've done uh, workshops on him. I did a series once called Who Is, you know, around here in Los Angeles, around built around local famous jazz musicians that were either born here or had connections here. And so Charlie Mingus was in that grouping, so I, I, I got a grant to do something for him. So anyway, I'm, I'm doing... Um, I'm. Uh, I have a bunch of information on Charles Mingus, who Dalili had given me information to read up on. Some of which I read, others I didn't read. But it's the night of the concert. I'm on my way to the gig, and I'm driving, uh, looking, kind of looking up at the sky, and I just happened to, to have seen a shooting star. I saw a shooting star. Wow. I said, wow. It's Charlie Mingus. I said, why did I say that? I mean, I said, why did I say that? I mean, <laughs> so anyway, I keep driving and I'm going and going. I get to the gig and I didn't think about what I had said or the shooting story or anything anymore that night. We just played the music and it was just nothing special happened, you know. And got, I mean, the music was good and everybody enjoyed it. So then it was over. So then the next day, 
I decided to look at some of the information that I hadn't looked at because she's still kind of on my mind a little bit. You know, we just played the music and some of his music, and so I'm I'm going through. She gave me a ton of. That's why I didn't read all. She gave me too much to, to really digest. So, I went through some of the other things that she had given me, and I saw this old downbeat, and it says, uh, it was an interview of Charles Mingus. So, I flipped it open, and I, and I had never seen this ever before. It was a, uh, a repost though of an old interview, because this was in a. It's in a, at the time, fairly recent downbeat, but it was a repost of something that happened in 79, right? Right before he passed, I believe. Anyway, the opening statement of this Charles Mingus interview starts out by saying uh, he was real, real sick at the time. And I think he had just about given up. And he said, yeah, I'm kind of getting tired of this life thing he said but uh you know when I go out I want to go out <laughs> like a shooting star I said damn I can't believe this you know I, I said, that's why that's why I said I said, you know honest to God it happened you know I said that's Charles Mingus I said damn why did I say that <laughs> so yeah, I'm a firm believer there's a connection, you know, and, and some of these guys have very strong spirits, I'm telling you. So that's why I do kind of have to believe Mark's story, too, about the vision and all that shit. It's, uh, when you're playing, does that, I mean, do you go into sort of that state, or I, mean, I don't know how to, to even say it. Like, what is it like yeah. when you're playing? Well, you, you try to get to that point. When you can, and when you do, it's nothing like it on earth. <laughs> Not it. even sex, almost. Well, <laughs> <laughs> is oh, that the, close? <laughs> is that the sort of the entire pursuit of playing is to to find that that Absolutely. place? Absolutely, yeah. And and to and to get that oneness, you know, because however many people's up on the bandstand together. You want it to feel like one. I mean, that's the objective. That's my objective, you know, always. You know, I don't care if it's 12 people or four people or three people, you know. You know, we, we want to feel like one. And that's not always easily accomplished. It's not always accomplished, you know. But when it does happen, it's special, you know. Yeah, yeah. is there... Because I was talking to another musician, he was saying he always has goals and uh, that he wants to achieve when he's on stage, you know, just to 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 challenge himself. And I didn't get to ask him, but I was like, "What do you do the same thing? Like, do you have a place you want to get to when you go up there? Like, to to I guess he says I want to say something I've never said before, which mm. seems like probably musically that's an abstract thing and maybe yeah, hard to I seemingly. I always seem to fall short of that, you know, which is which keeps you. Wanting to reach it, you know, I guess because I'm not ever hardly ever satisfied with with the music, you know, and you know you get compliments and all, and that means a lot, you know, but uh, you know it can be better, and uh, you're always striving to improve it, you know. So uh, fortunately, I still feel like that, you know. That's that's why I'm still playing, I guess, and you know it's it becomes more of a challenge too, you know. I, you know, brass instruments are are not the easiest thing in the world to play, <laughs> 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 and as you go older, you know you have to uh, make sure your body's in pretty good shape, you know, in order to do that. So I have to uh, prepare a lot now. Do you, you, I mean, I'm, I assume you play, have to play every day, and is there other yeah. regiments involved? Yeah, exercise. Mm. And, uh, breathing exercises, and you have to watch you. Okay, speaking for myself, I have to watch my diet and everything, you know. So, 
Yeah, it's a, quite a challenge and a commitment to continue to play this music. You know, I don't even know why they use that term "play." It's not playing. It's not anything playful. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> uh, playing. It's more like working, but uh, enjoyable work because you know my job has taken me all over the world. And I'm so happy and privileged to have, you know, been chosen to be a, a part of that chosen few. You know, they're able to travel the world, not really become rich or anything like that, but go to places that people pay dearly to go to and, you know, and have fun and get paid on top of that. So it's not a bad life. So my grandmother, you know, she, uh, she, uh, yeah. I'm saying, what, what did she say? She said, okay, if you become a musician, um, you can travel the world, you can uh, make a lot of money, and you can meet a lot of women. So, <laughs> I don't even know if it's two out of three or not, but... <laughs> But I'm I'm glad I'm in it, you know. I really am happy to be here. And thanks so much, Matt. Uh, thank for, you very much for your time. Yeah, yeah. It really meant a lot to me that you did this, so thank you very much. All right, I appreciate it. I didn't uh, cover everything that I wanted to, but uh, anyway, <laughs> it is what it is. It is. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please follow me on Twitter. All my information is on themattdwire.com. If you can donate to the show, that would be awesome. Use my Amazon link uh, and uh, put that in your toolbar. And every time you buy something on Amazon, I'll get a kickback of that. So please go through uh, my my on the Feral Audio Matt Dwire conversations page and do that. That would help us out immensely. Thank you very much. I love you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.